0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you. It's great to be back. I've been out of town for a few weeks, and it was wonderful to be able to worship in some other contexts and other traditions, but it's also uh, very good to be home and to be with each of you. We've begun a new series uh, in the book of Genesis that's going to take us for a number of weeks through this uh, great uh, book. And last week, Steve talked about uh, Genesis chapter 1, that God lays out a plan for all of humanity, that there's a purpose to life. And here we see how we're meant to live out that purpose, that we're meant to live in community. And this is our Old Testament reading. This is Genesis 2. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this is such a a crucial text for us to understand who you've made us to be and how we're to carry out our purposes here on earth, but it's a a difficult text because the institution that you live, that you give us as a metaphor, is one that we have a difficult time wrapping our heads around. And many of us have experienced marriages that are not healthy, are not whole. We live lonely in marriages. We live in one of the most connected ages in history, or the most connected, and yet we feel alone, and many of us feel alone in our marriages. We exist in bad marriages, mediocre marriages, and ones that have come to an end. Lord, help us to see that the ideal of marriage is what you want to explain to us and how it gives us a picture of who you want to be for us and the way that you want to relate to us. Father, other, others of us are single here, and I pray that you would help us to see, not, see marriage not as the premier relationship to aspire to, but the premier metaphor for relationship that you want to have with us, that you aspire to gain with us. Father, help us, assist us as we go through this text. Let us see what you want us to see, Father, and let us see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Stomatis Moriatis It's a very difficult word, very difficult name, but he's a Greek immigrant from the island of Icaria. And he was a, a war veteran in Greece, but he uh, immigrated to the United States. And he didn't have a particular, any particularly unhealthy habits. He just went about life. But at 62, he felt very short of breath. He would get out of breath walking upstairs, and he wasn't sure what was going on. He would have to quit work at midday, and so he went to see a doctor, and after x-rays, the doctor concluded without doubt, and then nine other doctors concurred, that he had lung cancer and that he had about nine months, more or less, to live. Now, he considered staying in the United States to be close to his adult tr- uh, adult children and, and to seek aggressive cancer treatment, but... At the end of the day, he decided to save money on his funeral and went back to his island home where he had grown up many years before, the island of Icaria, and he wanted to be uh, buried with his ancestors. Now, when he got there, at first, he spent most of his days in bed, being attended on by his uh, elderly wife as well as his wife. But he reconnected with his Greek Orthodox faith, and each and every Sunday he would hobble up the hill to worship at this church, week in and week out. Now soon his childhood friends discovered that he had moved back and they started showing up every afternoon. And they would talk for hours on end in an activity that invariably involved a bottle or two of the local Italian wine. And he thought, well, I might as well die happy. In the ensuing months, something strange happened. He starts to feel Stronger. Six months come and go, and he doesn't die. Instead, he planted a garden, and then, feeling emboldened by that, he cleaned up the family vineyard and began to grow grapes once again. Easing himself into the island routine, he wakes up when he feels like it. He works the vineyards until mid afternoon. He makes himself lunch and then takes a real long nap. And then in the evening, he walks down to the local tavern and plays dominoes until past midnight. The years passed, and his health continues to improve. Today, three and a half decades later, he's 97 years old. He claims he's 102. But what's of no dispute is that he's cancer-free, and all that he did was move to the island of Icaria. It turns out, though he didn't know this in moving, that Icarian men are nearly four times as likely as their American counterparts to reach the age of 90, and they're also living many years longer before the onset of cancer, cardiovascular disease, depression, and dementia. Why is this? Is the fountain of youth there? What is magical about this island or this area of the world? Well, it's very interesting because only eight miles away is another island called Samos. And the island doctor of Icaria, one of the only island doctors, says just 15 kilometers over there is a completely different world. There, they are much more developed. There are high-rises and resorts and homes worth a million euros. They care about money. Here, we don't. For the many religious and cultural holidays, people pool their money and buy food and wine. And if there's anything left over, we give it to the poor. It's not a me place, but it's an us place. Their extreme longevity and health, after many studies of this island, have been attributed to not their diet, not the weather, but the fact that they live in a deeply integrated community. A book came out a few years ago entitled The Lonely American. It was written by two medical doctors, and they conclude there is now a clear consensus among medical researchers that a social connection has powerful effects on health. Socially connected people live longer, respond better to stress, have more robust immune systems, and do better at fighting a variety of specific illnesses. What do we read in our passage? It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for humanity to be lonely, to be isolated from one another. Six times in this creation account, God looks at what he's made and he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then surveying the whole of his creation, he says, it is very good. And then in a sort of literary whiplash, He says, it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. Many of us here this morning are experiencing very deep symptoms of being alone. We feel lonely. Even though we're surrounded by people, even though we're in the midst of a crowd, even though we're connected technologically to almost anyone we want to be, we feel alone. Maybe you've just ended a relationship and there's this relational vacuum that you feel. Maybe you've just started one. Maybe it's marriage and you're discovering like every other marriage person, married person that it's not all that it's cracked up to be, that it's not the solution to all of your worries and problems and loneliness. Maybe you're lonely at work. Maybe you're lonely in your circumstances. Maybe you're lonely in the midst of conflict. Now, if we look at this passage, we see something astounding. It should be very shocking, especially to those of us here who are Christians, because what this passage is saying is that in the original creation, before the entrance of sin into the world, there is a loneliness that even God's presence doesn't immediately remedy. That He's designed you and I to be so interdependent to be interdependent, that even as he is present and near to Adam, that he is still still in some significant way alone. Now, if you were God, if you were creating the cosmos, if you were making the world to be a temple of worship, wouldn't you make it so that all all your creatures needed was you alone? You alone would be enough to satisfy their every need. Now, we had a class on the Trinity the last few weeks, and we learned in that class that it's not simply that God loves, but that He is love, that God Himself exists in relationship, in community, and that's part of His very essence. And the reason that we long for togetherness, for community, for interdependence, is that you and I are made in the image of the one who is eternally in relationship who is eternally together, who is eternally in community, who is eternally interdependent. It's a part of the very essence of being a human being. Last week, Steve helped us to see that we were built to worship, that we have meaning, that humanity has a direction to follow, a telos, if you will. But this week, we're learning that these things are to be done in community, in relationship, or maybe... To say it more strongly, if we have purpose, if we have meaning, if our worship is directed rightly to God alone, but we don't pursue this purpose and worship from within an integrated community, we will be lonely and discontent. This passage tells us this through describing the very first wedding ceremony where God creates humanity, male and female and then unites them together. And with that as a kind of extended background, I want you to see just two things, two observations. This passage and this wedding ceremony tells us two things, what we learn about God and what we learn about ourselves. First of all, what do we learn about God? The Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. And this is sort of God's match.com eHarmony moment. He's bringing all of these animals before the man to see if one of them will be a suitable helper. And what does Adam say? Well, nope. Too hairy, too smelly, too trunky, too dangerous, too feathery. None of these will work. They're beautiful, but none of them will be bone of my bones. None of them will be a suitable companion. And so what does God do? He puts Adam into this deep sleep. And this is how most of us men experience our wedding ceremony and all of the events leading up to it. We're pretty much asleep. We know there's things going on, but we're not really paying attention. And while he was sleeping, God took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. You have this beautiful picture of a man being astounded by what God has put in front of him and saying, yes, this is who I was created to be in community with. This is who I want to spend my life with. This is who I want to follow your commands alongside of. And when marriage is done well, it depicts God's covenant, faithful love to his people. And we need to see this from two different perspectives because marriage as it's done well and marriage as it's not both tell us something about God. When marriage is done well, it depicts how faithful God is, that He enters into covenant relationships with His people that are inviolable. inviolable. There's intimacy, joy, togetherness, interdependency in marriage, and it's to be a picture of God Himself, of these qualities that exist between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally and the way that He has joy and pursues intimacy with his creatures. That's a picture. That's something that we learn about who God is when marriage is working well. But what about when marriage is not working well? Well, the very next chapter in Genesis 3, which we'll get to next week Adam and Eve, give in to temptation, they begin to sin. They walk away from God. They assert their own authority. And immediately, what do they sense? They sense their nakedness. They sense shame. They sense guilt, and they hide. They cover themselves with makeshift clothing. Now, the man and the wife, it says, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. And God says, where are you? Humanity, you and I are made to be known, to be revealed before God, and to be revealed before others without shame. That's who you were created to be. But now they're hiding, they're covering themselves. Now, God knows where they are. Why is he asking? Why does he say, where are you? It's so that they will own up to their hiding. It's so that they will confess their deep need of him, so they will reveal themselves to him. And how does God respond? He doesn't exploit their shame. He doesn't say, come out of hiding so that I can berate you. No, come out of hiding so that I can heal you, so that I can join you together, so that I can join you to me, so that I can cover your shame. And when that's your relationship with God, when that's how you understand God's relationship with you, then you can mirror it in your marriage and in your relationships with others. You can be the one to confess your sin to your spouse. You can be the one to confess your sin to your roommate, to your parents, to your children. You don't have to hide, to conceal anymore, but you can be honest about your own shortcomings because you've already told them to the one person in the universe who it really matters. And you can also be a soft place for others to confess their sin. You can invite honesty, you can invite openness from your spouse and those that you live in community with because you've found God, you've experienced Him to be gentle with your failure. You can invite your spouse to come out of hiding and allow him or her to be seen for who they are and not to feel ashamed any longer. You see God walking in the garden and saying, Where are you? is both our greatest desire and our greatest fear. We want desperately to be fully known, to be known entirely and not be rejected. And yet it's terribly scary to be undressed in that way. It's terrible, terribly scary to be metaphorically naked before other people because to do that gives them the power to either embrace you or to laugh at you. God looking for us in the garden is our deepest longing and our deepest fear at the same time. And we give God, we give others the power to embrace us or to laugh at us. And what does God choose? What does he do as they come out of hiding? First, they were naked and knew no shame. But as human rebellion and assertiveness enters in, so does shame and guilt and self-consciousness. And they sow fig leaves over themselves in this pathetic attempt to cover and hide their nakedness, attempting to do what God alone can do. And this story sets up for us the rest of the Bible in how mankind seeks to do the things that only God can do on their behalf. It's a metaphor for the human condition because the New Testament picks this up and Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that we long to be clothed that we know that we're naked before God. But wrongly, we develop these pathetic strategies to conceal and cover our nakedness on our own. The story of the Bible that begins here in these early chapters says all of this is just posturing. That just as God has provided physical garments of skin in Genesis 3, that He gives them something to physically hide their shame, and hide their nakedness, nakedness, that that's pointing to something deeper. And that is that he will one day send a redeemer that will gladly cover all of their nakedness, all of their shame, all of their guilt, that he will clothe them with the garments of spiritual salvation. When Jesus, this redeemer, comes, what happens to him? His clothes are taken and they're divided up and people cast lots for them. And then they parade him down the streets to be laughed and mocked, laughed at and mocked, on the way to be crucified naked on a cross. You've seen many artists' depictions of Jesus crucified with loincloths on. And thankfully they do that. However, it's most likely inaccurate. It is most likely that Jesus was crucified completely naked for everyone to see. You see, Jesus comes full circle and takes Genesis 3 and covers our nakedness. He says, you are naked before God and others, but I give you myself. I become naked in order to clothe you. He takes on our nakedness. He takes on our shame and washes it all away and clothes you and I, if we're Christians, in the garment of his salvation. And that's why at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 3, the angel is speaking to one of the churches and says, "'You say, church, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich.'" and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. What we learn about God in this wedding ceremony, in this event of Adam naming the animals and coming to know his wife and these two human beings being united in deep fellowship to carry out God's purposes, what we learn about God is that in the moment of humanity's most desperate need, that he pursues us with reckless abandon to give us grace. That's what we learn about God depicted in this wedding ceremony. But what do we learn about us, about ourselves? Well, those of you who are married, those of you who have lived in any intimate relationship can attest that we're selfish people. If we're honest, we're selfish. And when we enter into a marriage, when we enter into a vital community with other human beings, we learn more and more that we are selfish. And we see this in looking at the word that the Bible uses to refer to the woman, ezer neged. Traditionally, it's been translated as help meet. It's two Hebrew words. Helper doesn't quite get it. Traditionally, it's been help meet. Now, maybe this word conjures up the world of Mad Men in the 1950s, where women are simply available to serve their husband's interests. They're to have dinner ready on time. They're there just to be window dressing, to help him move forward in his career. They're there to serve his interests, whatever those interests are. And it's so unfortunate because this account tells us that marriage is far from that, that woman is, women are created to be something much different from that. But also, the way that this word, what we learn from this word is that uh, it's very far, far from the modern sort of feminist stream that encourages women to be independent, particularly independent from men. And many of you will know if you've been in Portland very long, if you accidentally hold a door open for a woman, you might get in trouble. It's very different from 1950s Mad Men, it's very different as well from some of the streams of naturalistic feminism. This word is saying, this passage is is not saying that women are derivative, nor is it saying that they're independent. Azer is a cooperative term. And interestingly, hold this in your noggin for a few minutes, it's a military term. It describes God joining someone in military combat. Azir is used here of the woman, but it's used frequently throughout Scripture to, to describe God himself as he comes to be an advocate, a military, combative advocate for his people. And that's why helper is far too weak of a term, because it suggests that the woman is provided solely to help in the man's task rather than that they share equally in the task that God has given humanity, male and female, together. Azar, you see, is not an auxiliary function, but it entails an active intervention on behalf of the other person. You and I are created to need other people, and that's what this word tells us. That's what this wedding ceremony tells us, is that you are dependent upon other people. You're dependent upon other people to be the person that God has created you to be. And the beautiful thing in this ceremony is that as God brings this woman to the man, and it works in the the opposite way as well, is that when you get married, when you enter into a Christian relationship, whether it's marriage or not, what that person is meant to do is to have an image of what you could be, an image of what God has created you to be and called you to be, and to violently fight for it not fight against you, but fight against everything that would hinder you becoming the person that God has created you to be. Marriage is meant to embody this reality in a more acute way than any other relationship. If you are married, you realize that your spouse is almost omnipresent. She or he is almost omniscient. They know all of your dirty laundry. They know all of your baggage. They know your past. They see your nakedness metaphorically and really. They're almost omnipotent. They have the power with one word to either crush you or heal you. You see, if the whole world thinks you're a failure and your spouse believes in you, you can move on. You can keep going But conversely, if the whole world thinks you're an extraordinary success, but your spouse tells you you're nothing, it can be painful and utterly debilitating. Some marriages are places of unbelievable loneliness and sadness because one or both of the spouses has said to the other one, here's how I want you to look, here's how I want you to dress, Here's how I want you to behave. And insofar as you comply with these expectations, then we'll do, be just fine. It's unbelievably sad. And it's sad for the person making those demands because really it says something about the way that they understand their relationship with God because they're bringing that heartache and that sadness and that pathetic trying to cover themselves into their own marriage. It's unbelievably painful. And for many of us, this reality isn't just at play in our marriages, but in our relationship with God. And so we sow these pathetic fig leaves. We're constantly walking on eggshells, wanting to be truly known by God, but paralyzed by the fear that he might not really like the real us. That maybe he's committed to love us, but he doesn't really like us. And so we hide and we cover and we live in shame, and we bring that into our relationships, relationships, most potently our marriages. Now, another type of marriage is where the spouse, in their words and actions, says to the other person, there's nothing you can do to cause my love to be stripped away from you. I give myself fully to you, not because of how you look, how you dress, how you make me look, how you behave, but because marriage... Because I understand what Jesus has done for me, I believe marriage is not the means by which I get my needs met, but the context in which I advocate for you. It's the context in which I enter into combat in order to secure your benefit and your welfare. As we conclude this passage, this wedding ceremony, ceremony is not primarily about how to have a good and healthy marriage, but that marriage is the premier metaphor for the relationship that God wants to have with you. In other words, it's a mirror. It's to mirror Jesus' actions on your behalf. That what Jesus says as he comes to the cross is that I've decided, I have chosen willingly to cover you, to cherish you, to redeem you, to enter into combat with the cosmic forces that would have you, to enter into combat with your self-assertiveness so that you can be set free, so that you can be liberated, so that then you can enter into other relationships with that same motive, to mirror that, that you can enter into a marriage and be one who doesn't make demands upon the other person but gladly serves, gladly gives up the right, his own or her own rights, gladly says, no, you go you go first. This is what Jesus has done on behalf of his people. He covers, he cherishes, he redeems, he enters into combat, cosmic combat on the cross to secure your welfare, your salvation. And as we continue to worship, as we can confess our faith, as we come to the table, would you wrestle with that? Would you, maybe for the first time, expose yourself to God. You can't expose yourself fully to others until you've been fully exposed to God and found Him to cherish and love you no matter what. And that's what we see as we come to the table, and I ask you, encourage you to wrestle with that. Have you ever been fully revealed and fully exposed before God? Would you take the opportunity to do that now as we pray? Father, this is a very scary text And this whole worship service, if we really understand what it's all about, is a scary event. It's a joyful event. It's an event that we can smile in the midst of, and yet it's very scary. It's terribly scary because it is required of us that we let go, that we take off these pathetic fig leaves that we've sown to cover our own shame and let you cover us instead. Father, I pray that somehow you would help us to see that, to let go of those ways that we've tried to cover and hide and conceal and let you step into our lives. Lord, I pray that we would grasp just how deeply you love us, that you went to the cross, that you gave up your life so that we could have it forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.